Welcome to the Get Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Liz McGavro, and I'm obsessed with all things writing, creativity, and telling your stories in your authentic voice, because I believe a good story can change the world. Ever since I was a little girl with my nose in a book, I dreamed of being an author. I wanted to see my books in bookstores everywhere. I wanted to talk about books. I wanted to soak up everything about the craft. My celebrity crushes were mostly authors and I could feel in my bones that the writer's life was my destiny. Fast forward to today. Along with my alter ego, Kate Conti, I'm an Agatha Award-nominated best-selling author with three mystery series, but it wasn't all smooth sailing along the way. I experienced many setbacks, crushing self-doubt, a lot of career detours, and I even lost my voice a few times when I let the world get in my way. Until I learned that writing was so much more than just a skill set you learned and developed over time. It's also an inside job that flourishes when you heal all the wounds that are stifling your creativity, which is no easy task. So if you're a writer of any kind, or if you've always wanted to write but aren't sure where to start, this is the place for you, my friend. We're gonna talk about all things writing process, craft, strategies to help you get writing and stay writing, the daunting world of agents, editors, and publishing, And because I'm using my authentic voice, I'm going to throw in a little woo-woo for you too. So let's get writing, shall we? to the Get Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Liz McGavro, and the day that I've been waiting for is finally here. I'm sitting down with the one and only John Valeri today, and I'm telling you, when I was starting this podcast, he was right at the top of my list of people I wanted to talk to. If you're in the mystery community, John needs no introduction. He's one of the most sought-after book reviewers, the host of Central Booking, a video show where he interviews some of the biggest author names in the mystery world, and has written author interviews and book reviews for magazines like The Strand, Mystery Scene, The National Book Review, and many others. I've known John since like 2007 when we both went to the Seascape Writers Retreat in Connecticut together. It was right after I had moved to Connecticut. I didn't know anybody, but I heard of this amazing event that was run by Hallie Efron, Susan Hubbard, and Roberta Islib, all authors that I was familiar with and looked up to, and I thought it was just such a great opportunity. So I went, and I was lucky enough to be put in John's group, and when I read his work, which was very much like the movie Scream, uh, very Scream-esque, as I like to say, I knew we had to be friends because it was totally my style. And so friends we became. And over the years, John has been right there with me throughout my career. He's reviewed my books, he's interviewed me, he's supported me, and he's just the loveliest person you'll ever meet. I can't wait to share him with you today. So let's go. Hi, John. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Liz. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh my gosh, this is the best day ever. I've been waiting and waiting for you to come on. So I'm very happy that you're here. (laughs) I am happy as well. (laughs) Good. I love it. So I want to go all the way back to where we met. We've known each other for a long time. It's like, what, 2000, since 2007? I was hoping you could tell me. 
when that I think it's 2007. Was, I, I know it was like 13, 14, 15 years ago, and it doesn't seem real because you, you have not aged. So please let <laughs> me know your secret. I had less we... body weight then and far more hair. And then there's you who, you know, looks exactly the same as you did in 2007. You're so nice. Thank you. <laughs> But I don't agree with your assessment about yourself, just for the record. So, no. well, thank you. This is why we're friends. Yes, <laughs> one of the many reasons. So we met at the Seascape Writers Retreat, which was awesome. And I just want to know, like, what brought you there? Aside from the fact that it was hosted by like three really big names: Helia Franz, Susan Hubbard, and Roberta Islib. Um, what brought you there, and what did you leave with? So aside from that, uh, you know, it was local, which is nice. And I just, I reached that point where so many of us talk about, you know, we want to write, we're going to write, and then we don't write because there's so many excuses not to. Um, and this seemed reasonable because if I'm remembering correctly, and it's a big if these days, but I think it was, you know, you, you weren't submitting a full manuscript. It was something like three excerpts. So I think it was your opening, an action and suspense scene, and then maybe something character driven. And I had some ideas, you know, knocking around in my brain. And when I signed up, it was still a few months away. So I said, okay, this gives me time to commit something to paper. And really, you know, that was the impetus for me signing up. I just, I really wanted to test myself. And the fact that, you know, there were established authors there, I was already, you know, a fan of Roberta's and I was familiar with Hallie. So I figured, all right, that's kind of cool. They're pretty much in my own backyard. Why not? Um, and what did I leave with? One, I think, honestly, the thing I treasure most is my friendship with you. And I mean that in all sincerity. I mean, here we are all these years later, and we still keep in touch. And you've, you know, written 18 books, and I think maybe I've read 18 books. So, you know, we're both <laughs> quite busy. Um, but, you know, I think my takeaway, one, was I think I discovered that I wanted to do something writing adjacent for a while. So I wanted to write about writing and reading versus maybe writing fiction at that time. Um, but I also realized, you know, that I wanted to open myself up to a new audience because, you know, you have family, you have close friends who read your stuff. But this was on a different level because in addition to, you know, the three authors who were running the program, you got feedback from the other members at the retreat, none of which I knew at that point in time. Um, so, you know, you open yourself up to a different audience and you learn to how to accept criticism, which I think really can be an art, um, because you don't always get that kind of feedback from family and friends. Though, you know, my wife, and I mean, she's a great critic. I get all kinds of feedback. <laughs> it's very helpful. Chelsea doesn't hold back. <laughs> no, not at all. She's like, this is good. That's crap. <laughs> you know, um, great to have in-house. I swear she should charge a fee. Um, but it was just great to, to be a part of that community. Uh, I mean, there are still people that I, you know, talk to. And when I was writing for Mystery Scene, I got to profile you and Hallie and Roberta. So it's just kind of cool how those connections play out over a longer period of time. And I got some writing done too, which was a nice little perk. Yeah, the, those retreats were so great. I mean, I went two years in a row. I went 2007, I went 2008. So the first year I, I got to meet you, which was so cool. And then the next year I ended up in the same group as Sherry Harris and Edith Maxwell. And now we're blog mates, you know, 10 years later and it's, and Christine, I don't, I don't think you know, Christine, but you're going to have to meet her at some point, but she's um, a fellow writer from Australia and she is a ton of fun. She kind of dropped in on the, 
on the retreat, you know, serendipitously. And she's been kind of in our world ever since. And she's, she's so much fun. You would love her, but it's just that community, right? It was just such a great experience, even though the feedback part was a little nerve wracking. I don't know if it was the same for you. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, But it's funny. It's like the sisterhood. I do remember I was the only guy there. (laughs) But a lot of people were actually staying over. I commuted, you know. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. I remember your, your stuff because you were in my group. And I remember thinking, because you were writing something that was very Scream-esque, and I loved it. I was like, oh my gosh, I got to get to know this guy, because I love horror movies. Um, I love Scream. I know that's a longtime favorite of yours. I was like a total Freddy Krueger nightmare on Elm Street girl, and so... Um, I used to have a poster of Freddy Krueger in my bedroom when I was a kid. My my parents were mortified. Right West next to Johnny Depp. Like God. We yeah. bowed down. <laughs> right next to Johnny Depp. Um, but so what is it about horror that, that, I don't know if it still is intriguing to you like as a writer, but I know definitely as a viewer, but what is it that holds so much intrigue for you? You know, the weird thing is, as a kid, I was afraid of everything, like my shadow, literally everything. I was probably diagnosable as anxious and God knows what else, but we weren't really talking about things like that back then. And I did like everything in my power to avoid horror. Like it would give me nightmares, all kinds of stuff. Um, And so I, I experienced what I will call, I guess, like horror light. Like, you know, in my reading, I would read R.L. Stein, uh, like, you know, the Fear Street books and Christopher Pike and Lois Duncan, who was a little bit more on the mystery suspense side than horror. And that you're really, you know, you're using your imagination. It's not really graphic or gratuitous. You fill in those pieces in your mind. Um, and I think the thing that I disliked about horror initially is there is so much gratuity and there tends to be, you know, not a lot of story, not a lot of care character development and then scream came along and i will never forget like i kept hearing about it and i was like 12 i think at this point so i was like all right i'm probably old enough to put myself through this and so for christmas i told my mom that i wanted the vhs and very specifically you know the special edition with nev campbell cassette box uh and i watched it on new year's eve after mom had gone to bed and my brother was staying somewhere for the night. So it was literally just me in the dark in the living room. And I watched this movie and it absolutely terrified me and it thrilled me too. And I remember when I went to bed, I was systematically turning on every light in the house is my way as I made my way to the bedroom. Cause I was just expecting somebody or something to be there to pop out. But the thing I loved about scream and that I still love about the scream movies is that their core, their mysteries, their whodunits, because the killers change with every movie. It can be anybody behind the mask for any reason. And so there was a story there. There was a mystery. And there was actual character development. There are characters that you get to know throughout four or five or six movies, which is incredibly rare, you know, in the horror field. So it was really that that appealed to me about Scream. And still, I tend to gravitate to horror that's character-driven versus gratuity. And I like the stuff that's, you know, based in humanity. I'm not big with, you know, sci-fi and paranormal. It's all about things, you know, that happen to real people all the time, which sounds probably kind of sick. But I don't know. That resonates more with me because it just it feels more grounded and real. Um, But it was really about the mystery element. And then, you know, I realized that well, some of these horror movies are really great, like Halloween, you know, with Jamie Lee Curtis. And you get to see her character progression. I mean, 40 years later, she came back, you know, 
yes, they had to bring her back from the dead, but we won't talk about that. (laughs) That was my interest with horror, but it came later in life. And again, it really wasn't for the gratuity of it. Um, It was more the horror that was character driven. Mm. Yeah, Halloween scared the crap out of me too. That was probably the the one that scared me the most out of all of them. Um, yeah, it was terrifying back then. Like that was the second movie I watched after Scream because Halloween was such a big part of Scream that it seemed like, all right, this is a good progression. And that one terrified me too because Michael Myers is just creepy. Yeah, yeah for sure. For sure. Um, and Nightmare on Elm Street kind of made me laugh more than it scared me. And yeah, Freddy like Krueger's Freddy character definitely didn't develop. Character by the end. You're like, he was really scary in the first movie. And then by yeah. the end, did you see New Nightmare, though? Wes Craven's New Nightmare, that one. I didn't. Oh, my gosh, you need to see that. Like, that's probably the scariest of all. Oh. Um, Wes Craven came back and wrote it. And basically, it's the characters playing themselves in real life. And Freddy transcends the dreamland and sort of starts to come into reality. So Heather Langenkamp is not Nancy. She's literally Heather Langenkamp in oh. the movie. And oh. I always thought that would be an amazing idea for a Scream sequel. You know, if the actors and actresses were playing themselves in real life, being stalked by some kind of ghost face. But Wes Craven had already done it. So I don't know how yeah. well that would have been over. That is very cool. I'm going to have to watch it. Thank you for that tip. I stopped watching after, you know, number, I don't even know how many Freddies there were. Seven, yeah, I feel eight, like after Wes Craven, like, dropped out, I mean, yeah. there was just a definite decline, and it definitely became a bit more comedic. But then he did one in the 90s, and it was really kind of brilliant. I think you'll like yeah. it. It was ahead of its time. Sort of awesome. like Scream was ahead of its time. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right, so let's move on from horror. And so I'm, I'm guessing that like most writers, you were reading and writing at a really early age. So tell us about that. What's your history with books? Oh my gosh, books, my savior, I think. Um, you know, I've always sort of been an introvert and books have always been my escape and they are still my escape. And I remember when I was really, really young, you know, mom reading books to me and that left an impression on me. And then it was, oh my gosh, you know, the town has a library where you can go and borrow books for free, you know, for weeks at a time. And you could literally walk out with like a stack over your head and nobody would tell you that you can't do that. There was no limit. And so I spent hours and hours and hours there. Um, But the first books I really remember becoming sort of an obsession were the Nancy Drew books. I don't remember, you know, how or why I discovered them. Uh, But the first one really, really struck me. I loved the character. And so I started collecting them. And, you know, at that point, Nancy Drew had been around for decades and decades and decades. So there were literally like hundreds of books and multiple series to collect. And I, I think I read pretty much all of them. And so I refer to her as like my gateway book, not my gateway drug, my gateway book. And she led me to Mary Higgins Clark. And after I discovered Mary Higgins Clark, that was you know, sort of opening the door to all of the adult readers that I enjoy now. But I remember being at a tag sale and picking up a mass market paperback copy of All Around the Town. And if I remember correctly, it was a professor, you know, who was murdered in a small college town. And it just it creeped me out. But again, it wasn't gratuitous. It was scary, but it was an amazing story. And so then, of course, Nancy Drew morphed into Mary Higgins Clark. And I read everything that I possibly could of hers. And then I started reading, you know, much more widely but that was that was really it nancy drew is my girl i thought i was gonna marry her and then people are like you know she's a fictional character right and i was like oh 
Plus, there was Ned Nickerson who always annoyed the crap out of me. Right. Don't you love it? Like when you sort of develop these relationships in your mind with fictional characters, and then you resent the fact that they have like remote romantic lives that don't involve totally. you. Maybe, maybe that's me. Um, no, totally. But, I used to read when I was a kid. I used to read. Uh, my mother had a lot of um, like Daniel Steele and Nora Roberts books, and you know we all know that the men in those books are unlike any man you're ever going to meet in real life. So wow. when I was little, I'd be like, "Oh, I, I like this guy," and then I'd be really sad when the book was over, and you know he was with the main character, and it right. was very disheartening. Isn't it? But I have to tell you, all right, I had a full circle moment recently. Like I became aware of this Kickstarter campaign, which I actually contributed to, which I hardly ever do. But they're making Nancy Drew into an action figure. And I will have her on my bookshelf. Oh, my gosh. That's the second best thing. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> That's awesome. I know, you have to send me the Nancy link to Drew, that. It's an incredible likeness. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that we had so much in common because I used to spend my weekends at the library too. I was such a nerd. I just wanted to be, I'm not calling you a nerd. I'm just saying in general, I was a nerd and I wanted to spend all my time at the library and I was so happy to, you know, pick out all the books and you're right. It was, nobody put a limit on it. You could just take as many as you wanted. Um, it was the best. Like, you know? <laughs> yeah, it was the best. So did your, did your horror horror reading precede your mystery or was it vice versa it was vice versa it's mystery first for me always uh but i remember you know as a kid before i was reading any kind of horror so before rl stein and all that stuff <laughs> i remember that murder she wrote was you know pretty much my favorite tv show it was that and the golden girls back in the 80s and early 90s like that was my favorite my favorite movie in the 80s and 90s was clue which was like a really slapstick yes. movie based yeah. on the board game you know yeah. i just i was so intrigued by the mystery of it all and so you know the movie clue led me to the board game and when i was really young they actually there was a series of books for kids that I started reading where you know every chapter ending would be its own little mystery can you figure it out so horror came later. Again, it sort of started with like the R.L. Stein teenage books, like, you know, Fear Street and the Seniors and the Babysitter series. And then Christopher Pike, who, I, if I remember correctly, was a bit more hardcore. Um, but it wasn't until after discovering Scream that I really started to read some horror authors. But even now, I think like my horror preference is it straddles the line of mystery, suspense, thriller. So people like Richard Chismar or CJ Tudor or Alex North, uh, things like that, I really tend to enjoy. They kind of exist in both worlds. And again, there, there tends to be maybe a bit of paranormal, but it's sort of done subtly. Um, but it's really all about the mystery for me. And then everything grows out of that. Mm. I'm fascinated by the psychology of crime and humans, you know, the good, the bad, and the in-between. Yeah, me too. I always say that's, you know, my, my grandfather, I'm sure you've heard me tell the story, but my grandfather was a detective. Um, I mean, I was kind of young when he was still working. I think he had, was just retiring when I was little. Um, so he didn't tell me a lot of the, you know, nitty gritty street stories, but I was always so intrigued by, you know, what he did and why people did the things they did. I really believe that's why I ended up writing books about it. I know. How can you have a detective in the family and not be, you know, intrigued? That's just, that's so cool to have in your background. And look at what you do now. I mean, like you have to really be your own sleuth to create these stories because there has to be a crime and a solution. It might be fictional, but you know, someone's got to think it up. Yeah, for sure. So you have a devious mind, Liz. <laughs> oh, I do. I definitely do. <laughs> I always did. 
And you found a, like a healthy, you know, outlet for it. Yeah. If more people could do that, you know, it'd probably be a happier world. Yes, which is good for the people around me for sure. So, mm. <laughs> so when did you decide to make your love of all things books and authors a career? Like, how did you get started reviewing and you know, just interviewing uh, all career. these authors? Can you define career because. You know, it's, I mean, I'm lucky if I can pay like my phone bill and the minimum, my credit cards. Oh, um, come on. So it's always been, you know, sort of a side gig for me. It's never been my primary means of income. Uh, you know, when I first started writing in probably the mid to late 2000s, I had a personal blog and I would occasionally write book reviews there. And I think, you know, at some point I hit some kind of you know, milestone moment. I don't know if it was a hundred entries or 500 and I made some author friends and I was like, Hey, would you come on and, you know, maybe help me celebrate this with a guest post or something. And they were also kind, you know, they all said yes and did it. And like, it was big names like Wendy Corsi style, who I love and Mary Jones. And I was like, all right, if I can do this, you know, on my personal blog, there's probably some other platforms out there. So, you know, I was actually in 2009, I was working at a nonprofit day program for adults with developmental and intellectual disabilities. I worked there, you know, for a decade and my background is in special education. And one of my friends was a job developer and she was looking online one day and she was like, oh, there's this forum called examiner.com. You know, have you ever heard of them? They will pay you to write articles. And examiner.com is defunct now so i can tell you payment literally meant like a penny or a partial penny per click <laughs> you know seriously um but at that point in time you know it was all about the sexy things like tv and movies and music and video games so i pitched a book column to them and i kind of worried you know will there be enough material to sustain this because i liked to try to keep it you know Connecticut focused a bit um, because this is where I reside and I was writing for sort of a, a local offshoot. So I did the Hartford Books Examiner column from 2009 to 2016, which is when they closed down. And I realized that people just want to talk about their books to other people who are sincerely and genuinely interested. And it started, you know, with friends or with, you know, local authors who you might not know. And then it just blew up into nationally known authors, internationally known authors. And by the end, you know, I'd interviewed James Patterson, Patricia Cornwell, Tess Garrison, and on and on and on. And I was like, if they'll talk to me when I'm writing, you know, examiner.com, maybe there's more out there. And sure enough, when examiner folded, I was like, well, I want to keep going. What can I do? And that's when I started writing for Mystery Scene Magazine when they were still in print. Now they're digital. Uh, criminal Element, Crime Spree, you know, all these types of things. And I just realized that there really is a variety of platforms out there. You have to understand that, you know, some of them pay and some of them don't. And so you have to sort of do that juggling act. But it's really, for me, a love letter, you know, back to the books and the authors that are so meaningful. Because like I said, they have been my salvation, my escape. And so I like to share that, you know, with people as an acknowledgement of what books have given to me, regardless of whether or not there's any kind of compensation for it. I love that. But yeah, you, I mean, you, you make light of it, but you've been part of so many amazing publications. I mean, it's fascinating. And we haven't even talked you. about your longtime friendship with the one and only Marsha Clark. I mean, hello, can we, can we talk about that? 
<laughs> you guys are tight. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, totally. First of all, thank you. You know, it's funny. I'm surprised myself sometimes about how fortunate I've been to contribute to what I've been able to contribute to. And I will tell you, I knew nothing about nothing. Like when Hartford Books Examiner ended, um, I'd been a fan of Mystery Scene. You know, I had a subscription to the magazine, just loved it. And I was like, well, maybe they'll let me write for them because I've done a few things, you know, over the last seven years. And what did I know? I emailed the editor, Kate Stein, like out of the blue, cold, like, this is who I am. <laughs> this is what I've done. Do you have any work for me? And the woman, saint that she is, was like, all right, I'll, I'll awesome. give you a try. I mean, who does that? <laughs> but anyway, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump ahead <laughs> to one of the questions that I know you have coming at me, um, which is asking me about a meaningful interview. Uh, and I will tie this together with your question about Marsha Clark, because yes, as you well know, and probably anybody else who knows me in the book world, when I was you know, a 12, 13-year-old, the Simpson trial happened, and I was completely captivated by that. And for whatever reason, you know, Marsha Clark became pretty much my hero. You know, I was literally a 12, 13 year old boy. And I was like, this woman, you know, is incredible. She's smart. She's tough. She's tenacious. She has a sense of humor. And I feel like if we ever met in the real world, we would probably get along. And you know, what 12 year old thinks that about like some 40 year old woman who lives clear across the country, who, who we've never met and has any kind of relationship with. But I used to write fan letters to Marsha Clark after the trial, and she would write me back. Like, she would sign a picture or whatever, and I was like, that's pretty cool. And if I had to pick one book that's been, you know, truly meaningful to me, it would be the book that she wrote in 1997. It was her Simpson trial memoir, without a doubt. And the reason that I love it so much is because it is so her. Even though it was a collaborative novel, you know, she actually did writing. And from sentence one, page one, it is very clearly, you know, her voice, her personality, her story. And you know that it's her telling you this story. And I mean, everybody who was anybody in that case wrote a book and almost all of them lacked personality. And you could tell, you know, they were as old twos and it was somebody else, you know, telling the story. But hers was just so intimate that I was like, if I ever write you know, nonfiction, I want it to be this, this honest and real. It's not that it's, you know, the best written book, but it is so representative of who she is, what she stands for, how she speaks. Um, and so anyway, Marsha, like me, it always loved crime. And, you know, she would try cases all day long and go home exhausted and crack open a novel, a mystery novel, a detective novel, and fall asleep reading. And she always sort of had this dream of wanting to write crime novels, but she didn't have the confidence to pursue it. And, you know, she also felt like at that point in her life, it was not going to be a lucrative thing. And she wanted <laughs> running water and all of that, you know, the dreams that we have. And so until many, many years later that she really pursued crime fiction, and it was after she had a history of writing for television. So her first crime novel, Guilt by Association, it came out in 2011, and I was, like, overjoyed because I've been keeping tabs on her, you know, totally stalkery <laughs> all these years. Um, and I remember reading, Marsha Clark is working on a crime novel, and then it got picked up, and it was a big thing. And for whatever reason, she's out in California. Her publisher decided to launch the book in Connecticut. So her first ever you know, book event 
was in Connecticut and I went to meet her and I got to interview her, you know, through email for Hartford Books Examiner. So she sort of knew, you know, who I was and I reviewed the book and she read it and she was very happy with the review. And so I went to this event and it's like all of a sudden, you know, Marsha Clark, who I saw on my television screen for a year and a half, is like right there in front of me. And I was a little nervous. And so I introduced myself to her and she gave me a big hug and she was just wonderful. And I said, you know, like you're in Connecticut all week. You have like three or four events. Don't worry. Like I, I will be at all of them, but you know, I'm benign, <laughs> you know, just there to support you and buy 500,000 books for me and everybody that I know. Uh, so don't feel the need to like take out a restraining order or anything. And she just looked at me and she's like, please, we all know that restraining orders just make people try harder. And like, I knew right then that we were going to be cool. And we just, we always, kept in touch. We hit it off really well. Uh, they sent her back to Connecticut with like her first five or six books. So every year, you know, we would see each other and it was really, really wonderful. And I interviewed her in some capacity uh, for each of her books and she's written like 10 now. So, you know, yeah. we've gotten pretty close, but anyway, in 2014, it was the 20th anniversary of the murders. I hate to use the word anniversary. I guess I should just say 20 years had passed since that happened. And I was doing a series on Hartford Books Examiner, sort of revisiting that time through people who had written books. And I asked Marsha if she would be willing to talk to me, not so much about the trial itself, but about the process of writing that book without a doubt, because it was so meaningful to me. And she said, absolutely. And we had a conversation about it. And of course, you know, you can't have a conversation about that book without having a conversation about the trial. But it was more so about the process and how she was able to collaborate with Teresa Carpenter to make sure that really her voice came through. Uh, so when I published that interview, her agent saw it and he sent me an email. I will never forget it completely out of the blue saying, just wanted to let you know, John, that Marsha has been inundated with requests, you know, to do interviews about the trial um, because of, you know, the passage of time. It was sort of a milestone. And he was like, she turned down every single one. This is the only one that she did. And, you know, so I was really touched by that, the fact that she was willing to go there with me, that she had that trust in me, but also, you know, that her agent went out of his way to say, hey, I don't think you know necessarily how special this is, but we have gotten offers from everybody and it's just been a flat no. And, you know, with me, it was never even a question. She was just like, yeah, sure, let's do it. So that was the interview probably that was most meaningful to me. One, because it was about that book, which is still my favorite of all of them. Um, but again, also, you know, the meaning behind it and just knowing that, you know, at that time, I was really the only person that got that story. So that was kind of cool. That's really amazing. How how did they, why were they sending her to Connecticut to launch her books? That's so interesting. It must've been fate. Maybe they knew you were there. I don't know. <laughs> I, they were like, he'll sell a lot of books. I think it just because it was so close to New York. So they had her like doing TV stuff in New York. Um, yeah. But we have, you know, so many bookstores in Connecticut that maybe they thought she would get a better turnout. But yeah, it was wild. And then it just kept happening over and over and over. So now when she doesn't get sent to Connecticut, it's like a real bummer. You know, she's with different publishers. It's not as much yeah. travel. And of course, COVID. So, you know, we Zoom and stuff. Right. But that's so cool. Though. I mean, people. that's just amazing. I yeah. love it. That's amazing. I just blathered on for like an hour. I'm such a fanboy. <laughs> no, so I love it. Marsha Clark and That's I'm so cool. 
<laughs> I, remember, I remember once I went to um, Writers Police Academy back in, oh my God, I don't even know what year it was, 11 or 12. And she and Lee Child were like the guests of honor. And I remember, yeah, I remember that year they were, te- yes. like I was part of the workshop that, you know, you learned how to um, like dig a shallow grave or something. And they were the ones that brought us out to the, to the oh, grave yeah. site. And there was, they used like a dummy and they had like actually buried this person or this dummy in the, in the, you know, in the field. It was really cool. But I remember her like walking around in the mud with Lee Child and I was like, this is cool. <laughs> I know. And it's so funny, like all these people, you know, you think you know who Marsha Clark is because you saw her on TV. But I mean, that was a very serious thing. Like she's different in her personal life than she is in her professional life. And she is, you know, so warm, so intelligent, like hilariously funny. I mean, she's just a real good time. And I think that people think Marsha Clark and like they think, you know, solemn and stern. And she was sort of branded a bitch for the longest period of time. Um, And that's just that's not her, at least, you know, not in sort of an informal, like fun setting. She's very approachable and has so much enthusiasm. But also I think that relationship speaks to like who you are as a person, right? And, and your, um, your, just your ability to connect with people and how seriously you take books and people can just feel that and they want to be around you. And I'm not surprised at all that she found a lifelong friend. Oh, thank you. It's so funny, but I mean, I do feel like it was crime fiction that like cemented our friendship because she knew I had interest in her and her books, like outside of the whole Simpson trial. It was more than that. And so I think that that was probably a good foundation, yeah. you know, for no, a friendship. Very cool. Who would have thought? All right. So you've <laughs> talked to pretty much everybody. So I don't even know if you're going to have an answer for me on this one, but who's one author that you haven't yet gotten to talk to? Oh my gosh. I thought and thought about this. I have been so fortunate. You know, I've interviewed so many people and it's always an honor and a privilege and so enlightening, but who, you know, I'm just going to go with a living person because if you, you know, talk about authors who are uh, beyond us at this point, the list would probably go on and on and on. But I think the one person who I haven't interviewed formally that I would love to Mm. is probably Elizabeth Gilbert. Um, She just has such amazing energy, and I'm such a big fan of her book, uh, Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear, and it's really her book on craft, and I have not, you know, looked at the craft of writing or creativity the same since I read that book, and I make it a tradition of mine to listen to the audiobook every single year when I need to, you know, sort of spark my own creativity, because she narrates it, and she does such a beautiful job that it's almost like having, you know, a conversation with a friend, albeit it's one-sided. I mean, sometimes I talk back to the recording, but it's not like she's acknowledging that, Um, but I just feel like she's such a force, and you know, I've read some of her other work, you know, I like it. I mean, Eat, Pray, Love is fine. Some of her fiction is terrific, but Big Magic is just such a special book to me that I would love to have the opportunity to to sit down with her or to, you know, Zoom with her and just talk about, you know, the creative process and what sustained her for all these years because she takes it so seriously and yet not seriously at all. And the book is just full of that, you know, those kinds of paradoxes like you have to take it seriously but you can't take it too seriously or it's not fun anymore so elizabeth gilbert (laughs) i love that if if only she was listening to this podcast john (laughs) maybe we'll both get our wish right i love this podcast though it's it's so similar like i mean you have such enthusiasm for creativity in the process and you know the fact that everybody approaches it differently and that's what i love you know not only do i love as i was telling you before listening to your voice but particularly sort of in this lane that you're in, because it's fascinating to hear people, 
you know, talk about how they do the work because you talk to 10 different people and you're going to get yep. 10 no, different answers. Thank you. Answers. And I totally agree about Big Magic. Um, that was always one of my favorite craft books too. And her idea, okay, so you'll appreciate this. So you, you may recall the book that, or you may not because it was so freaking long ago, but the book or the, the uh, excerpts that I brought to Seascape. So that book is still, oh my God. I mean, I'm going to use the excuse that I had to write 18 books in between then, but that book is still kicking around in my universe. And it's, it's actually been, you know, at the, on the surface lately, and I'm trying to rewrite it and get it done. But I've always kind of gone back to Elizabeth Gilbert's idea about that, that big idea, right? The one that comes to you and it's kind of a magical process. And then if you don't use it, it might leave you and go to someone else. Um, but if it stays with you, it's your idea and you have to get it done. And I feel like this book is that idea. It's never left my brain. It's gone through iterations, but it's never left. That Yeah. Then that means it's your book and you know, you will get around to it and it will be right there waiting. I have to tell you, I did meet Elizabeth Gilbert once. She did the forum in Connecticut in Hartford. And she was like out mingling in some cocktail hour beforehand. And man, I ran up to her and she probably thought I was a big old nut, but I gave her the biggest <laughs> hug. And her hug, it was like soul affirming. And she inscribed my book like she was she was just awesome. She was as wonderful as you would want her to be. And her parents live in Connecticut, so it's you know funny all these oh, you know. Wow, so see you might get your wish. It could happen. You might get your wish. <laughs> I'll just show up at their Christmas tree farm waiting. <laughs> That's awesome. And now it won't happen so, because I said that. <laughs> no, it will. It will happen. You're putting it out there to the universe. That's right. So, all right. So in addition to, you know, reviews and doing all of your writing about uh, authors and interviews, you're also, you also do a lot of moderating. You come to conferences and I'm always so excited to be on a panel that you're moderating because I know you're going to be so good at it because that is a job, man. That is a job and I don't like it. And a lot of people aren't very good at it and you're just good at it. So how do you, how do you approach it and how do you keep people on track and keep making things interesting? You are so sweet. Thank you. That means a lot to me because you've been on my panels a few times and we always have fun. You know, like I said, it's, it's a learned craft because I am not an extroverted person. That's not my nature. And, you know, people who've seen me at things, I don't think get that sense, but it does. It takes a lot of energy to be an extrovert where I'm, you know, I'm pretty much happy at home with my book in bed. You know, that is, that's my, I hear you. Um, (laughs) So I had to learn how to be comfortable in front of people. And I always think, you knew I was going to work Gloria Estefan into this (laughs) somehow, because she would be my favorite singer, you know, (laughs) watch out if I'm in Miami. Um, But she always (laughs) used to say that she can't believe that, you know, she has to get up on stage and perform in front of people because, you know, she was always incredibly shy. And for her, it was always about the writing and the music. It wasn't the performance aspect. But when they hit it big, like she had no choice but to be out on that stage in front of everybody. And she said that, you know, if she was obviously self-conscious, then everybody in the audience was going to read that and they were going to be self-conscious too. And that's obviously not the experience, you know, that you want to give to your audience. You want it to be free and fun. And so she had to learn to do that. And I was like, well, if I'm going to be up in front of a bunch of people, yeah, it's not 10,000 or 40,000 people, but you know, you want to embrace sort of that openness and that energy and just create a casual, fun environment. So, you know, I always strive to make people feel comfortable. I always try to do my due diligence, meaning I try to read 
you know, the most recent book by every author. If I can, I try to do a little digging into their background so that I'm somewhat familiar with them if I haven't met them before. Um, And again, like you said, it really is about genuine curiosity and interest. If people know that you're for real, uh, they respond to that. And I guess the other thing is, you know, when you're moderating a panel with multiple people, you're right. That is a hard thing to keep people on track because you only have, you know, so much time. It's usually, you know, a panel of four or five authors and a moderator and you have something like 45 minutes to have a meaningful conversation. Um, Mm -hmm. So what I try to do, what has worked for me is I always try to preface my question with the fact that we're going to start in a certain order. So people know that we're going to go down the line. So person one through five is going to answer a question. And then I reverse it. So we're going to start with the last person and work our way backwards. Um, I also try to have a few questions specific to each author so that each author has a few moments throughout the interview where they feel like they're personally being highlighted. And I think that that way everybody is ensured, you know, that they're going to have their spot in the sun. They're going to be able to offer something. And I think that, you know, people tend to be respectful of that. And a lot of times when I'm moderating, you know, big panels, it's professional authors and they're very mindful of, not wanting, you know, to take focus off of everybody else. Of course, you know, there are exceptions. Um, And I will give you a piece of advice that one of my friends told me. I haven't done this yet, but I have a gentleman friend who sometimes moderate panels, and he said he will prepare his panelists by telling them if they start to look too long that he'll give them, like, a subtle signal so he'll, like, rub his nose and they'll realize that they need to rein it in. And that way, you know, he's not calling anybody out. He's not interrupting the panel. He's not doing anything rude, but he's able to just say, all right, you've talked a lot. So, you know, let's move on without making that apparent to the audience. But again, I think it just starts with actual, you know, enthusiasm and genuine interest in what you're doing. And then everything else evolves from that. Yeah. And also not phoning it in with the same old questions, right? You see that a lot. That's very true. I mean, especially when it's panel after panel after panel, like you don't want to sound like the panel that just came before you. So yeah, you want to be prepared. I'm always probably over-prepared, but then you also have to be willing to just sort of go with the flow. And I guess a final word of caution I would give to moderators is maybe at the beginning of your panel, just reminding your audience that there will be, you know, a period of time at the end for audience questions so that they don't interrupt in the middle of your panel because it can be very easy once it gets opened up to the audience that way, your panel can derail. Um, but if they know that, yes, there will be an opportunity for that Q&A um, at the end, then they're able to relax too and enjoy the presentation before it's their turn to ask whatever questions may not have been answered. I was on a panel. I won't say where and I won't say when, but I was on a panel where the moderator just didn't have control over anything. And somebody in the audience was very uh, exuberant about wanting to get some words in. I mean, and this person, she may as well have just come up and sat on the panel with us for as much as she talked during the, and the, the moderator just didn't, it was, yeah, it was the most bizarre panel I think I'd ever sat on. Right. It happens. It and, just, yeah. and it's, it's like deer in the headlights. How do you respond to that? I mean, I will tell you, I did a local library event once that I was invited to as an author. Um, and then when I arrived, they were like, oh, here you've done a lot of moderating. So maybe in addition to that, you can moderate this panel. I was not prepared. I oh, didn't know geez. these people. And I have to tell you, that is the one panel in all of my years of doing this that went completely off the rails because these authors unfortunately didn't have that level of 
professionalism and they were constantly cutting each other off and basically just it was one upmanship and one upmanship and I've done this while well, I've done that and I just completely gave up I was like I'm just gonna sit here and smile <laughs> you know there you go it's all you can do sometimes <laughs> <laughs> but I do love the Gloria Estefan advice advice I had never heard that that's really interesting because I'm I'm the same way like I don't like to be I don't like all eyes on me I get very uh-huh. uncomfortable so I always have to try to figure out a way to get around that right and it's hard to do the conga sitting in your chair i mean you gotta let yes. them get you and <laughs> <laughs> absolutely <laughs> well you've got to be somewhat used to it because now you do a video series which is also awesome called central booking which i love so tell Thank us you. where you came up with the idea for that sure so really it was two things it was caretaking and covid um for people who don't know i have been full-time caretaking my mom since late 2016 so that you know sort of dramatically decreased my ability to to be out doing events um you know it's just when you're a primary caretaker that is your primary responsibility everything else becomes secondary and so I'd really started to scale back what I was doing in person just because it's, you know, hard to always either take mom with me or to have somebody home who's comfortable filling that position. Uh, so I'd been gradually scaling back, you know, what I'd been doing. And then COVID happened. And so the world shut down and I really wasn't doing anything outside of my house anymore. And I just I missed the engagement. And I thought to myself, you know, what can I do that will allow me to continue to have those conversations in some kind of real time? And central booking, you know, evolved from that. It's funny because I am not technologically inclined, you know, at all. It is like the most rudimentary thing. And I never would have thought that I would be embracing any kind of technology um, just because that's not really my jam. But there was no alternative. And I missed, like I said, I missed those conversations I missed talking to people about books. And then I thought, well, there's a real, you know, opportunity here. And I've always just, I've been interested in, I like to keep it casual and fun, as you know, but I try to do a deep dive because I want to get the background. I want to hear about what happened, you know, before this book, not just this book, but what led up to it. Because a lot of times I listen to author interviews and they're very short. um, But, you know, just when they get going and you're at the point where, yes, I want to hear more, it's like, okay, you know, end of interview. And I get that people have short attention spans. So my show is not for people, you know, who want a five or 10 minute conversation. It's like, come on, we're going to have like a 30, 40, 50 minute conversation. Um, But I just, I love the, the breadth of information that I've gotten. And so I've gotten to speak to local authors, but also authors all around the world. Like I have gone to gone, I've zoomed, you know, to Nigeria and Canada and London and all during COVID. And so I actually felt in some strange way that I was connecting more with people at that point in time uh, without actually pretty much ever leaving my house. And I just, I continue to do it. I'm not you know, pressed by the need to do a show every week. I just unfortunately don't have the time to be able to do that right now. But as things interest me, you know, I schedule something and maybe there's one or two episodes a month. And if people enjoy that, and if authors want to talk to me, I'm more than, you know, happy to do it. But it really has just allowed me, you know, to focus primarily on caretaking and doing what I need to do to make sure that I'm not putting myself out there and then coming home and exposing the people in my house to undue risk. Um, So it's just, again, it's 
trying to to balance one thing and the other because I I don't want to you know I don't want to let it go completely, but I also don't feel comfortable. Um, being out there all the time and just pragmatically it's not something that i can do anymore so this allows me to to stay in the game if you will yeah well it's a great show we'll put the link in the um show notes so people can find it but it's it's really fun and you have such great guests and great conversations i i like the longer conversations myself because like you said that's when you get to the meat of things right it's yeah i I get it it's hard i mean i struggle too to to find the time to listen to podcasts and to watch interview shows um but when i do i really do want sort of that in-depth Thing. So if people are looking for that experience, they will find it on Central Booking. And just to tie things, you know, up in a nice little bow, my first guest when I launched the thing was Marsha Clark. You know, who else? <laughs> yep. Who else? I wouldn't have expected anything else. <laughs> so what about, are you doing any fiction writing at this point? I know you've done some short stories, so you could tell us about those, but any other works in progress? So, you know... <laughs> I have not done much of any fiction writing lately. I have some ideas that knock around in my brain and every once in a while I sit down at the computer for a couple of hours and, you know, I play around with things, but it's not my pressing priority right now. And I don't know if this is an excuse or not, but I talk to so many writers who say that their reading life has just completely suffered because they're constantly you know, working on their own craft and reading books for ARC and they've lost the enjoyment of reading because there's just not the flexibility to do it for joy anymore. And I don't want to ever not be able to read for pleasure. Um, Granted, right now, I mean, the majority of my reading is tied to some kind of work, but I also know that I'm going to enjoy the majority of what I read, which makes that much easier to swallow. But I don't have the ability, you know, to take care of my mom and to do all these interviews and reviews and to write and then to get enough sleep to like be a sane person in the morning and to be a patient person, which I really need to be. And so, you know, something had to fall by the wayside and it was fiction for me. Maybe I'll get back to it someday. The nice thing is I've seen so many people, you know, who've come to writing later in life and had success with it. So it doesn't have to be a first career, a second career, or even a primary career. But I honestly feel like right now, if I was writing, that I think I would be more suited to like nonfiction or memoir, but I also feel like now maybe not may not be the right time for that. It might be something I want to revisit in the future. So we'll see. I find a lot of joy in doing the book reviews and in the interviews because, like I said, you know, one, it allows me to read with purpose. It allows me to give back to the community, um, and it challenges me because you don't want to write the same review four hundred times, which I I probably have done that. Someday somebody's going to go look and be like, you wrote this about that book too, you know? Um, But you know, so it's just, it's trying to find balance and prioritize the things that are really meaningful to me. And then sometimes other opportunities pop up. Like somebody approached me earlier in the year and asked if I would be willing to do some paid research for a nonfiction book that they were doing. And I was really intrigued you know, by that. And so I said, I will give it a try. And if I suck at this, just tell me and you can find somebody else and our friendship will <laughs> remain intact. But I prioritized that because I felt like that was going to be more fulfilling and beneficial to me in the moment, you know, than writing a story or a book that I may not be fully committed to. Um, but I did publish those short stories 
you know, a couple of years back, I think it was 2016, in a little anthology called Tricks and Treats by Books and Booze Press. And it was Connecticut authors telling uh, scary stories, basically. And the nice thing is there's this thing called public domain, right? So my first fiction appearance is in a book that has a story by Mark Twain. And our names on the back of the book are like one after the other because it's out. Oh, my God. So like somewhere, you know, he's turning over in his grave. Um, but the two stories, one. <laughs> One was Just Cause, which is sort of like a legal thriller, which was my sort of ode to Marsha Clark and her crime fiction. And the second story, and again, this is going to be a full circle moment, um, but it's a story called Blood Relations. And it's sort of a teen slasher scream inspired story. But the funny thing about it is it basically um, it took the opening scene that I had submitted to Seascape all those years ago because I'd always been sort of partial to it. And basically... Um, I took that scene, I changed some name and circumstances, and then I built a short story around that scene. Uh, so talk about, you know, full circle. Um, I had written an entire YA manuscript at the time and then done nothing with it, but the story always intrigued me. So I just sort of had the opportunity to tell it in a much shorter fashion. And so that's what I did. And I got to sort of pay homage to Scream. So, you know, they're out there if you look for them, but that's it for fiction right now but i'm hopeful for the future <laughs> no that's really fun and um you're absolutely right that you can you know a lot of people think oh i haven't started writing you know yet and it's going to be too late now but that's so not true i mean i know a woman who i think liz elvin right you know liz elvin yeah 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 she was what 75 when she published her first book isn't that amazing doesn't that make you feel hopeful not that you need to yeah. feel hopeful you've published 18 books, Liz. But I mean, like, it is nice. To... Well, I'm hopeful that I'll, I'll finish that other book by the time I'm 75. No. That would be nice, right? No. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's nice to know that, like, this opportunity will always be there when the time is right. And, and again, a lot of people say, you know, the time isn't right. Well, you have to make the time right. I think that that's true. But you also know whether or not your personal circumstances, you know, allow for this in the moment. So it's not always an excuse excuse saying the time isn't right sometimes really the time isn't right right yeah. now you just need to figure out when it is so that you don't give up on that dream totally so all right i have to ask too the books and booze press was that that little bookstore that used yes, to be in connecticut that's right. okay so that was where my very first book signing was for my very first book needing to die and you came i was there i remember we have a picture yep. from that event and you had the cool like rollout poster with the book cover yes and Jeez. shaggy was there yes like talk <laughs> about small world right and you were the yeah. edith maxwell right but she was writing under a different yep. name then um yes <laughs> Yeah, Taste Baker, her very first book. Yeah, that's wild. It was published, that yeah. anthology was published through that bookstore's imprint, so. Wow. That was a while ago. That's so cool. It, yeah, it's it's kind of scary. I don't know. The older I get, like, time is just this weird concept to me. It makes yeah. no sense. I don't know where no, it no, goes. No. I don't feel all that old most days, and then I'm like, wow, John, you're like 40 going on 41. You're kind of old. <laughs> and other days, I feel completely <laughs> decrepit, like getting out of bed hearse. <laughs> Okay, I won't tell you how old I am right now, because like, then you'll God, really think I'm old. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my grandfather, I'm going to be like my grandfather. So he was 39 until the day he died. And I'm still at 85. That's yeah. amazing. But like, that keeps you young. I think so much of it is your mindset. And like, I don't always yeah. feel old. 
Yep. Then I look around me sure. and I'm like, man, you know, people are, I don't know who these people are on Masked Singer anymore or whatever is trending on Twitter is meaningless <laughs> to me. And then I'm like, all right, I may not be old, but I am certainly not young because <laughs> I don't know any of this. Well, it's all right. We don't need to know everything. <laughs> That's true. Probably better not to know these days. True. Very true. Sometimes. Very true. So where can people find you if they want to look you up? Okay. People can find me at johnbvaleri.com. So that's J-O-H-N-B-V-A-L-E-R-I.com. So you'll find my latest reviews there, uh, links to my past central booking interviews. Also, you know, if you want to look up those videos, you can find them on YouTube if you just search central booking. Or, of course, I am on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those crazy things. I haven't made it yet to, you know, TikTok because I feel like that's beyond me. Yeah, same here. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> that's like the next generation, you know? Yeah, I hear you. I, I've got an account, but I don't use it very much. I really need to work on that. But um, so I'll put all the links in the show notes. And, you. you know, I just want to say, you know, aside from the fact that you are a delightful person and I'm so grateful that we met at Seascape and that you're my friend. I just want to say on behalf of authors everywhere, thank you, because you really make a difference in our lives and you just approach all of this with so much honesty and enthusiasm and you just, uh, you're just special. So thank you for everything you do for us. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Thank you for the gift of your books. I swear, you know, at my worst moments, I pick up a book and I am transported. And I think that that is, you know, absolutely the greatest gift. And I am thankful for that every day of my life. So thank you for, you know, what you do. And thank you for having me here today. It was so much fun to, to catch up with you these many years later. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. We'll talk soon. Absolutely. Okay. You're welcome. If you hadn't been introduced to John before today, I know you're going to want to thank me for that because isn't he just a special person? He really is just such a friend to authors. I really mean it when I say that. So make sure you go check out his reviews and his interviews. There's years of them to go through. And he's talked to some of like the most famous people you could ever meet. I mean, Marsha Clark, come on. And what he does means so much to all of us writers. And he's just so good at it. So go check him out. And I'd love to hear what you thought of this episode. You can send me an email. You can send me a DM on Instagram and let me know. You can find me at kateconti.com and send me a message there. And I would love it if you could rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast if you enjoyed it. It would mean a lot to me. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Bye.